Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 22nd, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening I am going to present the Arab Question, Part 1. Prayerfully, I will be able to return to my commentary on the Gospel of John next week. Here I am going to discuss what I think is a very important concept for all identity Christians to understand. I pray that at least 99% of the listeners of Christagenia do already understand it. This is always for the benefit of others as well. Sadly, this is still something which many identity Christians do not yet comprehend. But even with that, there are several other and unrelated reasons why I am presenting this topic at this particular time. I won't mention them all here. Most importantly, there are still many identity Christians who show undue sympathy for Arabs. This has long been a problem and often because the nature of Arabs and Arab history and origins are grossly misunderstood and there have been a lot of false claims concerning Arabs. The most outstanding example of such false claims in Christian identity literature, which I can recall, is in a series of papers titled Star Wars by Nord Davis. Davis died in 1997. Some of Davis's papers, including this one, can still be found at the Israel Elect website and other websites. While I now own and manage Israel Elect, I do not agree with everything posted there. However, the original intent of the website was to catalog everything Christian identity and when I took over ownership of the site in 2012 I believe I promised to keep it intact which I have done and I have not added anything new except for a few notices and referrals to Christagenia. I have also redirected some article links to corresponding material at Christagenia whether it be the Swift or Compare or Emmaheiser archives at Christagenia. But I only did that because Christagenia websites use much newer technology that offers readers options that are not found at Israel Elect. This was done in order to increase reader retention and encourage them to examine our Christian identity literature and beliefs more closely. When you visit Israel Elect and click on an article, you usually only get a PDF file or, or a large page of text with no return links. So it's difficult to navigate. Most of the visitors to Israel Elect come from Google and only visit one page and they're gone. Most of the visitors to Christagenia visit anywhere between 6 to 12 pages on average any given month. Returning our attention to Nord Davis, 
He was an active identity pastor, writer, and activist from the 1960s until his death in the late 1990s. Of those who knew him personally, he certainly has detractors, among which is an acquaintance of ours, a longtime Christian identity adherent and congressional candidate, Rick Tyler. But for my part, I can only judge Davis by what he actually wrote, and not from any personal knowledge of him. Often, while I was in prison, in my early days of study, friends had sent me copies of his so-called North Point Teams newsletter. According to Tyler, who apparently did know Davis personally, North Point Teams was an organization which had only existed in Davis's imagination and in his newsletters. That assertion does not surprise me, and I am not speaking on behalf of Rick Tyler, but he has posted this in an article on his own website, which, of course, I will include the link here when this presentation is posted at Christiania. In his writings, Davis insisted that his readers should have alliances with and affinities for the Arab people because the Arabs were eternal foes of the Jews, and because they were descended from Ishmael, a claim which is often made by Arabs themselves, and just as often by Jews on behalf of Arabs. However, the claim is not true. It is only true that some Arabs are in part descended from Ishmael which is evident in the history of the Nabataeans, for example, but that they are also all mixed with Canaanites and the other aliens of Scripture and with Negroes and other races, as is evident throughout the entire body of Arab history, whereby there is no Arab population that can even properly be called a nation. But Davis's views were popular among many other Christian identity pastors and writers of the time, and, in whole or in part, were accepted and shared by men whom I did know, such as James Wickstrom, Eli James, and others that would probably not be recognized here, such as my old friend Ralph Daigle. It is natural for us to have empathy for human suffering, and none of us should ever relish in unnecessary or gratuitous inflictions of suffering. However, misguided empathy is also a historical problem among our people, and the negative consequences which it has caused our race are a frequent subject of our scriptures. In truth, the Arabs have forever been in league with the Jews, and for many centuries the Jews have used the Arab races as cannon fodder in their wars against Christendom, for which reason certain Jews had also contrived the so-called religion known as Mohammedanism, or Islam, in the first place. It was an invention of Jews. The Jews have used the Turks in that same manner, 
And they also, in spite of their apparent origin in Central Asia, had accepted Islam at a very early time. That was not a coincidence. Identity Christians should have no open displays of empathy or support for either Arab or Turk, or for that matter, for anyone of any other race. And as the Apostle John said in his second epistle, if they don't bear the testimony of the Christ, they must be rejected completely. We do not accept at all people who are not Christians. And only whites can properly be Christians. Only descendants of the twelve tribes of Israel, not bastards, can properly be Christians. But another reason why I am presenting this particular article at this time is because some of my detractors are now spreading the rumor that I am a plagiarist. Evidently, all of my work is only plagiarism of Clifton Emmeheiser or Bertrand Compare, as I have heard as recently as the past two weeks. If anyone actually examined my writing and compared it to others before me, I am confident that they would not be able to find even one instance of plagiarism on my part. Every writer of history or interpreter of scripture can only cite the works of others who wrote before him. And the effective scholar should draw from as many sources as possible to create the narrative which upholds whatever it is that he is attempting to describe or to prove. So yesterday I made a brief comparison of some of my citations in comparison with citations found in the writing of Bertrand Compare. Doing that, I found that the Greek geographer and historian Strabo of Cappadocia is only mentioned twice in the papers I have posted from Compare, but he is cited in 128 articles at Christagenia. Likewise, Theodorus Siculus was mentioned only twice by Compare in the sermons which we have posted, while he is cited in 82 articles at Christagenia. Herodotus was cited five times by Compare, but in 109 articles at Christagenia. So far as I could tell in my writing to date, I have cited Homer in 72 articles, Hesiod in 29, Euripides in 50, Aeschylus in 25, Livy in 28, either Pliny, elder or younger, in 21, Thucydides in 18, and there are others such as Xenophon, Pindar, Callimachus, Apollodorus, Catullus, Theognis, Polybius, and Procopius, whom I have cited, and out of all these, Compare only mentions Homer and Pliny on a couple of occasions. Homer and Pliny the Elder. Out of all these ancient classical writers, Clifton had only read Herodotus, and only Herodotus is found in his library, so far as I remember. Since Clifton's approach to understanding scripture and expounding upon scripture was quite different than my own,
The types of content found in his library are also vastly different from my own. Clifton drew mostly from commentaries and references, although I can attest that he read them exhaustively. While I have drawn mostly from original historical sources, and have also read nearly every ancient book or author which I have cited in its entirety. If I had to credit only one individual for what had inspired me to take the path that I chose for my own Christian identity studies back in 1997, it is E. Raymond Capt. Although to some degree, and he's still alive, to some degree I could also probably credit Robert Balakias, or maybe it's Balakias. I can. I'm sorry, Robert. I could. I could never pronounce his name. I'll say Balakias. After a year or so of study, I decided I was no longer going to read any identity material. Not even from those two, and only made an exception for Clifton and occasionally a few others, such as Richard Kelly Hoskins. He wrote about some awfully interesting topics. At that time, I had read only two of Capt's books, which are The Abrahamic Covenant and Missing Links Discovered in Assyrian Tablets. From Robert Balakias, I had only read his Uncovering the Mysteries of Your Hidden Inheritance. I ordered subsequent copies of that later on, just to give them away. Both of these men cited more of the ancient historians than Compare had cited, and their quotations from classical histories were what interested me the most. So I decided that I was only going to read the classical histories, and determined that, in addition to a closer study of the scriptures, they would either make or break my belief in this Christian identity message. So I took the few books I had, scribbled out a bibliography so that I knew what I needed to purchase, and I was on my way. But what is my point in all this? First, if anyone wants to call me a plagiarist, I challenge them to show me what I have plagiarized. Clifton worked with me right up until his passing last July, and he did not think I was a plagiarist. I host Robert Balakias's websites today, and I seriously doubt that Robert would ever accuse me of plagiarism. The copyrights to E. Raymond Capt's works are closely guarded by artisan publishers, and the owner of that company, Lynn Hoffman, is familiar with Christogenia. I am certain I would have heard from his lawyers by now if I had been plagiarizing Capt. All of the text and practically everything I have ever written is found at Christogenia at no charge whatsoever. Even the contents of the books which I sell are available freely online. So if I am a plagiarist, it should be easy enough to prove, <laughs> which is just a joke. But I have to address the I have to address the charge, even though I'm not going to address the fools who are making the charge. Generally, according to Dictionary.com, plagiarism is an act or instance of using or closely imitating 
the language and thoughts of another author without authorization and the representation of that author's work as one's own as by not crediting the original author. This I have never done. Without boasting, I can honestly state that I have written more original material made freely available than any other Christian identity writer has ever written. Perhaps Robert Balakias, who is quite prolific and who has written around 60 books or booklets, may have written more material than I have, but that is arguable and difficult to compare. I am not trying to compete with Robert. While the vast majority of my writing is freely available on the internet, in podcast form, it is not yet published in book form. Much of it may never be published in book form. Slander or attacks on a personal level are often used as a diversion so that people forget the real issues for a dispute. It is easy to slander, and when you repeat other people's false accusations, you too become a slanderer. It is much more difficult to dig to the root of an issue and determine whether it is true. Men who have made themselves my enemies, Eli James, Michael Brandenburg, Ryan Brennan, really hate me because of some personal agenda which they have. They really hate me because I would not tolerate their love for non-whites. Or I would not tolerate their having gone down the path of the occult. And therefore, I rejected them by rejecting their heresies. Tolerance of other races leads to idolatry, which is the lesson of the Old Testament. Prosperity gospel is idolatry, shrouded in Christian language. Identity Christians who accept any of the people who promote these ideas share in their sin, as Paul described the responsibility borne by those who accept sinners in Romans chapter 1. But this evening, what is more important is this, that Clifton Emmerheiser was an inspiration to me in several different ways. And while he was my mentor, that was a reciprocal relationship as he was also my colleague. For the final nine years of my time in prison, Clifton and I were in constant correspondence and always exchanging ideas or teaching or advising one another. That is how our relationship developed. It's how it began. That was how it persisted after I was released from prison. And that relationship was maintained until his dying days. Perhaps, as we discuss the Arab question from Clifton's papers this evening, some light may also be shed on that aspect of our relationship. Perhaps also one day I will be able to publish many of our letters, as I had saved quite a few over the years. But Clifton, whether I ever may have borrowed any of his ideas or not, would never have accused me of plagiarism.
He invited me to expand upon and critique his work. He very much enjoyed the occasions when I did that. And I will continue to do that in his honor, but never for his denigration, so long as I can produce anything here at Christagenia. So now we shall present and critique Clifton Emmerheiser's September 2006 paper, Arabs, Friend or Foe, by Clifton Emmerheiser. Clifton published this paper and distributed it to his mailing list just over two years before I was released from prison. So I don't think anyone can claim that I plagiarized the credit he gave me when he wrote it. So Clifton begins. This is a subject that I have been needing to address, and address it I will. For about the last two months, I have been pondering how I might go about this. And in a letter from William Fink to myself, he laid it all out very appropriately. Bill has written this same thing to several others. And here is the general outline of those letters, except that the names of those promoting the Muslim Arabs as our friends are withheld, unless those persons become obnoxious. Actually, five years later, Eli James, who was promoting this idea, did become obnoxious and forced our split in January of 2011. If memory serves me correctly, one of the people I wrote this to was Eli James, who had initiated correspondence with me in April of that same year, 2006. The first two letters that Eli James had written to me are posted at Christagenia.org in the letter section. In due time, it became evident that Eli never accepted this lesson, as he had reverted back to citing the writings of Nord Davis in reference to Arabs and other races after our split in early 2011. Now Clifton cites this letter which I wrote to him. And he says, I will dispense with the usual quotation marks as Bill writes the following. So, maybe Clifton plagiarized me, right? But we would never consider it that. We shared our work. We came to many of our conclusions by talking them over with one another. And that is how we grow. August 6th. 2006. Dear Clifton, so that you know, and there is an ellipsis marked here, I didn't dig out the original letter for this presentation. I'm sure I have a copy of it somewhere in my prison papers, which have been in storage for many years now, and I don't have the time to go dig through them. So that you know, this is what I've been writing concerning the situation in Palestine which of course reflects my full position on the subject. I've heard that there is some confusion or even division in the identity community. What else is new? Concerning, and that's a parenthetical remark which I had made, concerning the current recent events in the Middle East, 
allow me to discuss my opinions concerning this matter here. I will try to be brief. Remember, this is 2006. The younger George Bush, George W. Bush, was president, and he agitated in the Middle East throughout his entire presidency, right? Even though I had only been familiar with Christian identity for about nine years at this time, when this letter was written in August of 2006, and I had been in prison throughout that entire period, I was already well familiar through Clifton, but also through several others, of at least most of the divisions and sects which are found among identity Christians. But the ones which I addressed were always in relation to topics which I found to be of paramount importance. And the most important of those was the subject of race in Scripture. It was nearly three years before this, in late 2003, that I had written to Dave Barley on this same subject. That letter and the subsequent exchange was published as one paper by Clifton under the title William Fink Challenges Dave Barley Concerning Arabs and Universalism and Other Sins, and it was published at the Israel Elect website a short time later, probably in 2004-2005. To Dave Barley's credit, he has now recanted his former universalism and has come to a better understanding of the role in race in Scripture. Clifton, continuing with my letter, we in Kingdom Israel Identity, and that's what I sometimes called it, the true two-seed-line adherents, and not the spurious, blind, universalist types, know that the Jews are evil, and are indeed the children of the devil, I was writing this for a wider audience. I had sent copies of this letter to several Christian identity pastors. It matters not how many of them live or die in Palestine. We know that the so-called Israeli state was founded upon treachery. And in doing so, millions of Arabs were displaced from lands occupied by them for nearly 1,400 years. And indeed, some of their ancestors those who were absorbed into Islam, raped, or otherwise captured and forced to convert, lived there much longer than that. Yet we must not forget that very thing, that the Arab had taken that same land from white Christian Romans and Greeks and others who inhabited it up until the Islamic conquests. I must interject that the recognition of injustices and misguided or misplaced empathy for the victims of injustice are two separate issues. The letter continues. More importantly, the Arabs are not our friends. Neither can they ever be. The very word Arab is a Hebrew word which denotes a person of mongrel descent. And I referred Clifton and these other gentlemen I wrote to Strong's numbers 6148, 6150, 6151, and 6154, a group of related words in the Hebrew language. 
and so therefore they are not ever pleasing to Yahweh. Furthermore, an examination into the very being of the Arabs reveals that they too have the blood of the serpent through the Kenites and Canaanites, the Moabites and Ammonites running through their veins. The Arabs, while not masquerading as Israel, still pretend to be holy and noble under pretense of certain Old Testament commandments borrowed into their Koran, and are still just as much the children of, of the serpent as the Jews are. And perhaps I may have had Ishmael there rather than Israel. As I said, I haven't dug out the original copy of the letter. That'll be interesting to find out one day. If indeed I retained the original copy of this letter. I actually made copies of most of the letters I sent to Clifton, but being in prison and having to pay 10 cents per page to use the copy machine, sometimes it was prohibitively expensive. The word Arab in relation to the indigenous people east of the Jordan or to the south and the ancient lands of the biblical Edomites and Ishmaelites first appeared in literature in the Old Testament kingdom period. It is found in 1 Kings chapter 10, in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, in Isaiah chapter 21, Jeremiah chapter 25, and Ezekiel chapter 27. The name persisted throughout the Second Temple period, it's in the books of the Maccabees, and into the writings of Flavius Josephus. The Romans, evidently taking the name from the Hebrews, the Romans called the land Arabia Felix, or Blessed Arabia, which seems to portray a land which was more fertile and richer in resources than what we know today. And it certainly was. Blessed Arabia had actually sustained quite a few large towns at its time, back in Roman times. The Greeks created many towns there and settled there, as did the Romans. It seems to be a general opinion of mainstream academics that Arabia was called such because the sun set in the west over the Mediterranean. So the east was the direction from which evening comes. The word Ereb meaning to grow dark, it was also used to describe evening. However, in the morning, the sun rises in the east. So that theory makes little sense. It is my opinion that the land was called Arabia because, over time, the tribes which had dwelt there had all become mixed with one another. And that includes the tribes of the Shemites descended from Joktan and Peleg, and the Midianites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and others, as well as many of the Canaanites, Edomites, and other races, such as the Rephaim, the Kenites. By the dawn of the Hellenistic period, many of these tribal names, which are found mentioned in the area in Scripture, had disappeared.
But that does not mean that the people themselves had disappeared. Having mingled together, they became known collectively as Arabs. Then, mixing with other races, they grew dark, which is primarily what the verb form of the word means, to grow dark, Arab. Clifton continues with my letter. What's happening in Palestine today is only Satan's little sideshow, a great distraction which has all the eyes of the world fixed upon it which is at least the perception which the Jewish-controlled media of the West likes to present, convincing us that everyone cares about their artificial Israel. They only promote their own sense of self-importance to others. And that's a, a new note. It wasn't part of the original letter. In the 7th century... The Arab Moors, and they were certainly Arabized by then, poured into once white Iberia, occupying at one point the southern two-thirds of the peninsula. For that reason, under this very day, most of the inhabitants of Spain and Portugal resemble Arabs, for that is what they are. It was the Jews who invited the Arabs into Iberia. Martin Luther wrote about it. When the Mongols invaded Eastern Europe, the Jewish merchants opened the gates of the cities to them. Luther wrote about that too. Today, many of the Mongol descendants in southern Russia and Iran and neighboring states and the Middle East are found practicing Islam. And when I said Russia here, I more accurately may have said the USSR, not really referring to Russia proper. Later, in the 16th century, Jews were threatening Spain with a Turkic invasion in retaliation for the Inquisition. Of course, to this very day, the Jews continue to use the Islamic Arab hordes as a weapon in their destruction of Christendom. But now they are doing it with completely different tactics. Again, Clifton continues citing my letter. After the conquest of Iberia, the Arabs advanced toward France, and they were turned back after a great effort by Charles Martel in 732 AD at Tours. This is one of the most important events in our history. Had the Moors been successful, we would all be riding carpets today and praying to a rock hidden under cover in the Arabian desert. We would also all look like Sicilians. The Moors conquered formerly white Sicily, and held that and large portions of southern Italy for up to 200 years, especially around the town of Bari and its environs on the east coast, until their rule was ended by Danes and Franks, and for that reason today, most of the Italians, especially of the South, resemble Arabs, for that is what they are. Now, of course, I do understand that there are many white Italians, and I know many Italians who I certainly esteem to be white. But at least most of the white Italians are found in the North. I often use Sicily as an example of what happened to much of southern Europe during the Muslim conquests, and some of my listeners may think I am being unfair, 
but admittedly I have never been there and I receive mixed reports concerning the nature of the people of Sicily to this very day. I can only say that generally I would not consider the typical Sicilian that I met as a young man in the neighborhoods in and around New York I would not consider them to be white. Most of them seem to be crypto-Jewish or Arab-looking mobsters. I have also known several Sicilians in my own lifetime, like the New Jersey mobster, Tino Fiumara, you could look him up online, who vehemently denied being white in spite of his fair skin. When Tino was called white by Negroes, something which I witnessed firsthand in prison, he was actually insulted. <laughs> but in spite of Tino's attitude, and outside of the New York City area, I have more recently seen a few examples of fair-haired and fair-skinned Sicilians who appeared to be white. Perhaps it would be more fair to pick on Portugal or Greece as an example of an eradicated and formerly white nation of Europe than to choose Sicily or even especially Italy. However, there are always going to be exceptions to every example. Every example you can imagine will have exceptions. Clifton continues with my letter. From the 12th century AD, the Islamic Arab Turks, Arab in that sense meaning mixed, conquered and absorbed the Greek Byzantine lands, putting many Christians to the sword and raping women and children. They subdued one large parts of the once all-white Balkans and made it as far as Vienna in Austria, where their sieges failed. The Muslim Turks, truly an Arab race, held all of Greece until 1825, and for that reason we ha today we have Muslims in the Balkans, and many, if not most, of the Greeks today look just like Arabs, because that is what they are. The Ottoman Turks besieged Vienna in 1529, and again as recently as 1683. Had they been successful, we'd all be wearing kufi hats today and grousing about the liberals who'd want to do away with our daughter's burkas we would also all look like today's Sicilians. That, to Jews and Arabs alike, would be heaven, for the Arabs and the Turks, along with the Mongols, were certainly the flood spewed from the serpent's mouth in Satan's attempt to destroy Israel. And I also understand that at least most of the Mongols were also white or partially white. I should say, or mostly white. While the Arabs and Turks were a significant fulfillment of that prophecy, the flood is still coming, and other groups may also be added to the list. Now, continuing with Clifton's conclusion of my letter, so how do we repay the valor 
of our French and German ancestors who repelled the Arab invaders at Tours and Vienna. Look at France and Germany now. At the beckoning of the Jews, we have let Arab and Turk take our countries freely. Europe is being overrun with Arabs. There will be a price to pay for letting this happen. This is the real battle. We must fight for the hearts and minds of Yahweh's true Israel people and not be distracted by Satan's deceptive sideshow in the Middle East. If Satan fights against Satan, how can his house stand? If they all destroy one another, good for them. We must only concern ourselves with our own kindred and beware of both Jews and Arabs. Bear in mind that this was 2006, and the process, which I tried to describe here, is much more advanced now, 13 years later. Now Clifton finishes my letter. Concerning this, I wrote a pamphlet which, Christ which Clifton shall distribute this coming week, called The Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy. I hope you find it to be of use. And Clifton has a parenthetical remark here. End of William Fink's letter to myself. The essay which I mentioned here has long been available as a podcast at Christagenia, The Immigration Problem and Biblical Prophecy. And it now has, in, in excess of 65,000 downloads, Writing that essay in 2006, I never dreamed for a second that it would reach so many people. Of course, here Clifton was citing a copy of a letter which I had at first sent to others, so he left that last line which he really did not have to include. But doing that, he did me a favor, providing me with a record of when I first wrote that paper, something which I may have been unsure about in the past. Somewhere in my prison papers, there are small notebooks containing accounts, brief accounts, of what I did each day that helped me ensure that I did something each day. And one day, I pray that I will also be able to sort through them. My scoffers may claim that I am plagiarizing Emmaheiser, but very often in his writings, Clifton was citing things which I had written to him, which he always admitted doing whenever he did make such a citation. But in the early years, he referred to me only as a proofreader. But that is not plagiarism, it is cooperation, and Clifton and I purposely worked together in that manner, hoping that we were working for the common good of all identity Christians. If my, I'm sorry, if my detractors really ever actually read or listened to Clifton, they may realize how closely we worked together in that fashion for nearly 19 years. But my critics really do not trigger me. I only enjoy mocking them whenever they deserve to be mocked, which, in my humble opinion, actually happens quite often more often than I could even mock them, do they deserve it. Now Clifton continues his essay by elaborating upon a few of the things which I had said in my letter. The word Arab in Scripture. 
The term Arab in the Strong's Concordance is listed at Strong's numbers 6154 and 6151. Strong's defines 6154 as Arab, citing a slight difference in spelling and no difference in pronunciation in various verses, and says that it's from 6148, the web or transverse threads of cloth, also a mixture or mongrel race, Arabia, mingled people, mixed multitude, or woof, woof, W-O-O-F, which is a term that relates to cloth making, Strong's defines number 6151 as Arab. Now, Strong's, even when Hebrew words were identical, such as Adam, if you look in your Strong's Concordance, you'll find entries for the word Adam in 119, 120, 121, probably a couple of others. Strong's gave them different numbers based on the part of speech. So we see one entry for Adam as a common noun, another entry for Adam where it's interpreted to be a proper noun, the name Adam, another entry for Adam where it's a verb, which means to blush or to be rosy, another entry for Adam where it's an adjective, meaning rosy or ruddy. So that's how Strong's arranged his lexicon and his Strong's numbers. That's how he assigned them. So we have 6151 and 6154, and 6154 is the noun, where 6151 is the verb. And there's a few other numbers, as Clifton has already informed us here, or will inform us, I'm sorry. I am sorry, as I had informed Clifton in my letter, there are a few other numbers for variations of that same word, which are really only other parts of speech, an adjective or an adverb or whatever. So, Strong's defines 6151. First, we had the noun, 6154. Now we have the verb as Arab, corresponding to 6148, another form of the same word to commingle, to mingle, or to mix. Clifton then says that the root of this verb in Strong's is listed at 6150 and is defined as a primitive root, rather identical with 6148 through the idea of covering with a texture, to grow dusky at sundown, to be darkened, Clifton now says, in the Jesenius Hebrew County Lexicon under number 6154. You know, Jesenius, when he made his lexicon, made it long before Strong had made his concordance. But its modern publications of the Jesenius Hebrew County Lexicon that cross-reference Jesenius's definitions with Strong's numbers. And they've done that in publishing Jesenius as a service to students of the Bible 
who are usually more familiar with strongs and need those numbers because they're not really familiar with Hebrew. It would be a an arduous task, let me put it that way, to use a dictionary like Jesenius's without the Strong's numbers because you would have to be familiar with the Hebrew to be able to understand the order of the alphabet and look up the entries in the order in which the letters appear in the Hebrew alphabet you would have to be very familiar with the alphabet so it would be a, a much more difficult task so in modern times when they publish lexicons like Jesenius they the publishers themselves provide the Strong's numbers with the definitions in the Jesenius Hebrew County lexicon under number 6154, one is directed to see the root under numbers 61, 48, and 49, which in turn says, defining Ereb as the verb, to mingle oneself, to intermingle, to enter into marriage, citing Ezra chapter 9, verse 2, and I will comment on that. Then, under 6151, it says, to mix or to mingle, for some reason, slight variations in the word, even though they're both verbs, are given two distinct entries. I believe one is Syriac, or Aramaic, and appears only in Daniel. I think that's possible. I don't remember exactly. Clifton may not have noticed it, and perhaps I may have proofread this better when he originally wrote it back in 2006. Because here where Jesenius defines the verb, Ereb, in part as to enter into marriage, citing Ezra chapter 9 verse 2, he is being deceptive, whether or not his deception is purposeful. Back then, in 2006, I could not check the entire Jesenius definition. I didn't have a copy of the book. I was in prison. But now I can check it. The only time this word Ereb is used in relation to marriage is where it is used in relation to a mingled marriage, to the marriage of Israelites with those of other races, which is the very context of Ezra chapter 9 verse 2. This and related words are also translated as mingled in scripture, referring to people of diverse tribes in Psalm 106, in Jeremiah chapters 25 and 50, in Ezekiel chapter 30 and Daniel chapter 2. Most notably, it is also the mixed multitude. It was translated as mixed, this word Arab, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, and Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3, which states, Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude, that word mixed being the word, Ereb as an adjective. Continuing with Clifton, he will mention and cite those passages and a few others. He says, the new brown-drivered Briggs, Jesenius Hebrew and English lexicon. Brown-driver and Briggs made 
a lexicon based on Gesenius's earlier lexicon, says the following on number 6154, Ereb. Mixture, mixed company, a heterogeneous body, meaning people of another race, attached to a people, attached to Israel, Exodus 12.38, Nehemiah 13.3, Jeremiah 25.20, 50, 50.37, 25.24, 1 Kings 10.15, Second Chronicles 9.14, Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 5. Clifton says, Before we go any farther, perhaps he should have said further, we should read these passages mentioned first by Jesenius and then those by the brown driver Briggs, Jesenius. But before we do so, and, and Clifton's referring to the two different de- definitions he'd already given, but before we do so, it would also be well to define the word heterogeneous as used by the later in that definition we read in the brown driver Briggs version. Heterogeneous, one, different in kind, unlike, incongruous, and two, composed of parts of different kinds, having widely dissimilar elements or constituents. The word heterogeneous, heterogeneous literally means of another race or kind. Clifton continues by citing the passages which these definitions had cited. Ezra chapter 9 verse 2 For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons so that the holy seed have mingled themselves and that word mingled is the Hebrew word Ereb with the people of those lands. Yeah, the hand of the princes and the rulers have been chief in this process. So here we see that the word Ereb in that context doesn't mean to marry, as Jesenius claimed, but to race mix, to marry with aliens, to intermarry with foreigners, with those of other races. Daniel 2.43 And whereas thou sawest iron mixed, and that's that word Ereb, with miry clay as a verb, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And that word mingle, and that those two words mixed, all come from these words, Ereb, or Arab. Exodus 12.38 And a mixed multitude, and that word mixed is Ereb again. You could check that easily in a Strong's Concordance. And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds and even very much cattle. Nehemiah 13.3 Now it came to pass, when they had heard the law, that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude, and that word mixed again, it's actually the same phrase that appears in Exodus 12.38. That word mixed once again comes from the word Arab. Jeremiah 25.20 And all the mingled people, the word Arab again, 
and all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, and Ashkelon, and Azza, and Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 37. A sword is upon their horses, and upon their chariots, and upon all the mingled people, Arab people, that are in the midst of her. I wouldn't want to be on the short end of that prophecy. And they shall become as women. A sword is upon her treasures, and they shall be robbed. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 24. And all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mingled people that dwell in the desert. That word mingled again being Ereb. And that word Arabia being a word from Ereb, meaning mingled or mixed. And this particular verse seems to have been a Hebrew parallelism. Kings of Arabia and kings of the mingled people being one and the same. A parallelism is when the same entity is described twice consecutively with two different words or phrases, which is common in the Hebrew prophets. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 15. Besides that, he had of the merchantmen, and of the traffic of the spice merchants, and of all the kings of Arabia, and of the governors of the country. And that word Arabia is the word Arab, which means mixed. Second Chronicles chapter 9, verse 14. Besides that which chapmen and merchants brought, and all the kings of Arabia and governors of the country brought gold and silver to Solomon. And that is, once again, Ereb. Ezekiel chapter 30, verse 5. Ethiopia and Libya and Lydia and all the mingled people, the Arab people, and Chub and the men of the land that is in league shall fall with them by the sword. Clifton says, another word that has connotations to the idea of something mixed is the term Belial. Of the variant meanings for the word, number 1100 in Strong's Concordance, Belial, with Strong's number 1098, a similar form of the same word, indicates something mixed. Belial equals Arab, equals mingled, according to Clifton's little notation. The word Belial in a Strong's Concordance is number 1100. Strong's defines it as Belial. From two root words, two component words, Belial being a compound word, from 1097 and 3276, without profit or worthlessness, often in connection with other numbers, 376 is ish, which is a man, 802, 11, 21, etc. It's not important to look them up. Belial, evil, naughty, ungodly, or wicked, as the King James often translated the term. Jesenius' Hebrew County lexicon has it, in part, without benefit, unprofitableness, worthlessness, what is useless of no fruit, useless of no profit or little worth, wickedness or vileness, a wicked man, a wicked woman, an evil wicked thing, or destruction. And I would contend that Belial can refer to something mixed because something mixed was considered worthless, 
a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. In that manner, Clifton continues with another definition. The word 1098 in the Strong's Concordance is defined as Belial from 1101, mixed, specifically feed for cattle, corn fodder, provender, as it's sometimes translated in the King James Version, variously translated. Clifton did not offer the definition for the root of Belial, number 1097, which Strong's defines primarily as failure. The law forbidding mingled seed of any sort, the result of mingled seed certainly is failure. So the word was applied to mingled seed in that sense. Now Clifton returns to discuss further the original word in question here, which is Ereb. It should be noted that the Hebrew word Ereb has three different meanings, and once we comprehend their meanings, we then discover how they are related. As we see with the Hebrew definition for 6150 above, it describes the gradual darkening of the day as the sun progresses towards sundown. It also has the Hebrew meaning of the darkening of the skin color as a person of mixed race, or as they would say in South Africa, colored. We actually use that term in New York in the 60s. All blacks were called colored. This meaning is assigned the Swanson number 6846, and Swanson refers us to 1 Kings 10.15 and Jeremiah chapters 25, verses 20 and 24. These verses having been previously quoted here. And unfortunately, while Clifton mentioned Swanson here, Unfortunately, I could not find a dictionary by anyone named Swanson in Clifton's library, although a third of it remains in cartons and awaiting new shelf space here at our new home, which I haven't yet been able to procure. Continuing with Clifton, anyone who has ever observed an Arab has to admit that he is not as light as a Caucasian nor as dark as a negroid, although some are close to either. This is the similarity of the meanings, that evening is not as light as high noon, nor as dark as night. From the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 2, page 398, under the topic Arabs, we read the following. The people of the Arab world have no single origin. Although Arab culture was associated in early times with the Arabian Peninsula, over the centuries many different people have become Arabized through adoption of the Arabic language and other features of Arab culture. For nearly all Arabization was through Islam, the major religion of the Arab world. The Arabs are as diverse physically as they are in ethnic origin. There is no Arab racial type. Some Arabs do fit the stereotyped picture, lean and hawk-nosed, with darkish skin and black hair. But these features are in no sense typical 
Negroid Arabs are similar in appearance to Sub-Saharan Africans, and light-skinned Arabs are physically indistinguishable from most Europeans. I must note that most of the Arab world was originally white, as 2,000 years ago, even the Canaanites and Edomites were apparently white. But through Islam and the slave trade, which has been ongoing for centuries longer than most people in the West may perceive, Arabs freely interbred with Negroes and other races, and over time, that has produced many Negroid Arabs and many others who are one variety of dark or another. They're all Heinz 57, and it's not halal. It's pretty kosher, though. Again, returning to Clifton from the same source, again from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 13, page 310, under the topic Islam, we read the following. The term Islam refers not only to the religion, but also to the entire body of believers and the countries they live in. Among the predominantly Muslim nations of the modern world are Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Libya, Mauritania, Chad, Egypt, the Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, and the other states of the Arabian Peninsula. And I must say that if you pick up a, an, an official geographical publication in the modern period, like an, an authoritative atlas or other similar source, and you look up the official name of Egypt. The official name of Egypt is the Arab Republic of Egypt. So the Egyptians are basic, the modern Egyptians basically admit that they are indeed Arab. Clifton continues his list of the Muslim nations of the modern world. Turkey, Albania, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Large Muslim communities exist in Lebanon, Yugoslavia, the Soviet Union, China, India, and the Philippines. There is hardly a region that does not have a Muslim community. The youngest of the world's great religions, and of course this is a quote from Collier's Encyclopedia, the youngest of the world's great religions, Islam, developed in Arabia in an area that was one of the most significant melting pots revealed by history. And the great religious enthusiasm of the peoples living there was thereby diffused and given a universal character. And that was a contrivance of the Jew. Clifton only wants to stress that the fact to stress the fact that ancient Arabia was a melting pot, and that this is commonly acknowledged, even by mainstream academic sources such as Collier's Encyclopedia. So he continues. Again, from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, Volume 13, under the topic Islam, and the subtopic Central Beliefs,
of which there are five that are termed affirmations, central to basic Muslim doctrine. The fifth affirmation is of utmost interest to us here, and reads as follows on page 311. Fifth, the community of believers includes all who reverence Allah, his prophet, book, and the day of judgment. This is the celebrated brotherhood of Islam, in which all barriers of race, color, tongue, and status are broken. Only a Jew, and these are my words, only a Jew, a 6th century Jew, could have written those words into a so-called holy book. I myself have read, not the whole thing, but significant portions of the Koran. And as far as ancient texts go, it is a pitiful joke. It claims to accept Christ while mocking Christ, and making a mockery of the patriarchs and the apostles. And it presents legal arguments which justify perversion that are very much along the same lines as those found in the Mishnah, in the legal texts of the Talmud. I am convinced by the book itself that it was written by Jews. Now Clifton draws near the end of his paper, under the subtitle, Conclusion. I hope the reader is beginning to see what kind of a war we are in, and it's not a very pretty picture. Our white Israelite people simply cannot take sides with either the Satanic Jews or the Satanic Arabs. Simply put, we are at war with the entire third world conglomeration of people. We have no friends, nor should we have. The bottom line is, they are all satanic. If we absorb them, then we will also become satanic. Yes, genetically satanic. Is that the kind of grandchildren you want? There are already an awful lot of white people who have satanic grandchildren. If you want to avoid such a situation, avoid all universalist, one seed line, and no devil, so-called pastors at all costs. Clifton had, had a few axes to grind. Will this process of miscegenation never stop? never ever stop that has been going on for thousands of years of which the Arabs are a prime example. Here is a problem which I continually face and which recently caused me some trouble in social media once again. A certain clown named Mark Bridgeford who is a fornicator who has an alien stepson and a converso-Portuguese girlfriend, both of them clearly non-white, clearly Arabs, has been accepted into many Christian identity groups and circles. So when he contended with me and I called him out for his fornication, he now trolls me relentlessly. Now, evidently, 
because of his common hatred for me, he has been accepted by Michael Brandenburg, Ryan Brennan, Sonny Eanes, and all of my and all of my other adversaries in those social media circles. But when are identity Christians going to be willing to stand on principle? They certainly do not have to love me, but they should love Yahweh our God and his law. The lack of principles among many people claiming to be Christian identity, but really only fooling themselves, is rather astonishing. The label CI all too often really only stands for compromise identity. And so long as we compromise, Yahweh our God will not show us his favor. Now Clifton continues on another note. Another people descended from the Arabs are the Mexicans. They are a result of the Spanish explorers who had Arabs and Jews among them. And they still speak Spanish today, or at least a bastardized version of it. Again, from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 16, page 80, under the topic Mexico, and the subtopic Ethnic Origins and Language, we read the following. An estimated 300,000 Spaniards entered Mexico during the three centuries of colonial rule. They mixed with the Indians, producing the mestizo element which today predominates in the Mexican population. Most of the Negroes, estimated at less than 200,000, who were brought during the colonial period to work in the mines and on the plantations, had been absorbed into the population. And yes, I've seen black Mexicans speaking Spanish with woolly hair. This same article points out that there were more than 700 tribal groups and 100 different languages among the Mexican Indian element alone. Remember, the Hebrew word Ereb means mingled. Again, from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 17, page 80, under the topic Muslims and the subtopic the Omeyyad Caliphate of Spain, we read the following. So many native Christians adopted Islam and intermarried with the conquerors, the Arab conquerors, that the original Muslim stock was thoroughly blended with the local peoples. So Clifton correctly concludes. Therefore, we don't have to guess as to the general makeup of the 300,000 Spaniards who blended with the Mexican Indians. All one need to do is brush up on his history. Every white Israelite today should realize that the tenets of Islam have not changed in the slightest, as each Arab devotee thereto thinks in the back of his mind, white European, you either convert to Islam or you die. And Clifton asks, rather sarcastically, a Muslim doctor, anyone? This is why so many Muslims in Europe regularly rape white women, either to force them to convert or to create a generation of mixed-race children who identify as Arabs and convert voluntarily. When we accept these presumed people, we also accept the ages-old 
satanic agenda which produced mixed races in the first place. When I was a child, when I was a child, I was an avid reader. And I especially loved dictionaries and encyclopedias. I remember reading the definition for Mexico, and the dictionary that we had at our house said that it came from the Spanish term mestizo, which referred to someone of mixed race, and especially mixed Spaniard and Indian races. Now, I cannot find a dictionary which gives that origin for the word. So either they have all been sanitized or my memory is faulty. But a large number of Mexicans still being classified even in most mainstream sources as racial mestizos today. I do not know how the connection between the words could possibly be denied. Mexico is Mixtico. <laughs> but the bottom line is this. Neither Arabs, nor Mexicans, nor any other mixed race or non-white groups should ever be candidates for our friendship. Identity Christians do not need friends of the other races of the world. Rather, they will never prevail until they seek to be friends with their God, who commands that they reject the world. Having Yahweh, the God of Israel, on one side, one is assured victory over all of the enemy, with a majority of one. We cannot have Yahweh on our side, while we side with bastards. If we side with bastards, then it is fully evident that we do not accept the word of our God. Clifton has several subsequent papers on the same subject, which we hope to present here in due time. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, meaning the God of all white Christian people. Thank you for listening, and good night.